0: Can you hear me? Oh yeah. Well, good evening, Subi Church. I'm really excited to be here. Uh, David invited me uh, to come this weekend from Sydney, so I'm, I'm, I'm here on home assignments. Uh, we just got back to Sydney after nine years in Japan uh, last December, uh, December 28th, and he thought, why don't you come here and share at my church and share at some of the things he's organising, and I said, great. I've never been to Perth before. Um, it's a beautiful city, um, I would love to come back again with my family. Um, let me tell you about a friend of mine. Here he goes. In Japan, his name is Tadamitsu. Can everyone say Tadamitsu? Oh, very good, very good. Um, during his childhood, his father got involved in some serious gambling debts. Because of this, his family became quite afraid of organised crime coming to hurt them, and it got so serious, the whole family had to move to a different city, hundreds of kilometers away. His father, I don't know what he did, but he stayed back and he somehow paid off the debts. But life for Tatamitsu, when he was young, was tough, was very tough. I don't exactly know what happened, but as he grew older, the traumas of his childhood stayed with him. And as an adult, he wandered through Japan, taking on odd jobs here and there, and over time, he learned to drink alcohol, to deal with these inner demons. And soon, a couple of drinks became a lot of drinks, and he was addicted. And as it is with alcohol um, and alcoholism, he simply couldn't stop drinking. Uh, Every day, he would need to drink a lot just to get through the day. He could not stop. Uh, Sometimes he he told me stories about how he would wake up at home and he would have no idea how he got there, but he knew he must have driven home completely drunk. And so he thinks it's a miracle that he he didn't die or he didn't kill someone um, during this period of his life. Now, after years of wandering throughout Japan, he returned to his parents' home. He was broken in spirit and unable to stop drinking. But his parents had become Christians, and they were attending a church pastored by a missionary uh, from OMF. And so Tadamitsu decided to attend this church with them. And with his parents, he sat and he listened to the sermon. And afterwards, he went home and he prayed to God. He said, if you're really there, The pastor said, you are, then please help me, please take away my addiction to alcohol. And at that exact moment, he was completely healed. After years of non-stop drinking, his addiction to alcohol vanished and he has never drunk a single drop of alcohol since that day. And he was shocked. He was so shocked, he decided he really wanted to know who this God was. He really wanted to know this God, to serve this God, to love this God, to respond to him, this God who had healed him so miraculously. And so when I met him, um, I met him while he was working as an evangelist uh, with the church, uh, and he was telling the gospel uh, to survivors of the March 2011 earthquake and tsunami. And so we did a lot of stuff together uh, when I was there with him. Uh, Later, he would eventually go on to marry the daughter of um, some missionaries from Taiwan, and then he went to Bible college, and today he is the pastor of a church uh, established by OMF uh, in a small town called Otaru. Now, friends, this is what it's all about. See, men and women trapped in darkness, coming to light like sheep, wandering in the fields finally meeting the shepherd who loves and cares for them now I told you this story about Tadamitsu and you heard a miracle a miracle happened but here's the thing the miracle is not just that Tadamitsu prayed and was healed the miracle is also that Tadamitsu knew who to pray to he prayed to our God your God the one true God who created him and who sent Jesus to die for him. Today, thousands of Japanese men and women will find themselves in a similar place as Tadamitsu, lost, seeking answers, looking for help from a higher power. Thousands won't pray to the God who loves them and longs for them to turn to him. Instead, they, will, they might visit temples and they will pray to objects to help them. Or maybe they'll pay for somebody else to pray for them. Uh, They'll pray a Shinto priest to pray for them. Uh, And why Shinto priest to do the praying? Because these guys know the ancient Japanese language that only the the thousands of gods in Japan speak. So they can speak the special language of the gods. Um, And so here's this guy. uh, For about $100, he will pray for protection for your car. Or they might visit some of the numerous cults or new religions with their modern, sleek, beautiful buildings, offering all sorts of helps, so long as you can afford their high prices. Or you might something, try something new and trendy, like, and foreign-sounding, like palm reading, tarot cards, or crystals. Today, only a small, very small number of people will be fortunate enough to bump into a Christian, a missionary, and be shown the much better way. Friends, this is true of Japan. This is true of Cambodia, where David used to be serving. This is true of China, Vietnam, Pakistan, Uzbekistan, and hundreds of other countries where the gospel still hasn't taken root. This, this is it. This is why. This is what missions is all about. So how do we do it? How can you be involved in this life-changing, miraculous work? Um, today we're looking at um, a passage which invites us all to see our place, to understand what we can do as we take part in missions. I hope as we look at it very carefully, I, I, I pray that your hearts will be moved to see, to see what Jesus saw. I hope your hands might be moved To do what jesus would want you to move and maybe even your feet will be moved to take you somewhere unexpected as you join jesus in this adventure of telling people about him so let's have a look verse 35 says this jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness so when Matthew writes this, um, he's actually giving a, like a summary statement of everything that has happened in the last four chapters uh, in in the book of Matthew so far. Um, so, what's he saying? He's saying Jesus has been traveling, and, he, and three things: he's been teaching about God, preaching the good news, and healing people. Right. So the summary is preaching, teaching, and healing. And so Matthew wants us to know that Jesus makes sure all of these three things always go together, teaching, preaching, and healing. He was never just the teacher or evangelist. He was someone who cared for their needs of the people. And he was never just someone who helped people. He always made sure people understood what they were seeing, and they understood that what they were seeing was part of this new kingdom that he was ushering in. And so when I look at this verse, I think here is something for us when we think about missions, that we too must engage in ministries that balance, we could say, word and deed. We must have ministry that balances both word and deed. So um, in the small town where we live in Japan, um, there aren't a lot of obviously poor homeless people. We live in um, the northern part, it's about 28,000 people. We're surrounded by mountains and rice fields. Um, There aren't a lot of homelessness or things like that. But but Japan has what uh, they call the working poor. A lot of what you call the working poor. These are people who have jobs, but they earn perhaps just just enough to survive. Um, But they're actually in a tight and difficult spot in life, and they don't know where to go. Uh, our local sort of council, local government, had this volunteer program providing low cost meals to families. Um, and one of our co workers, uh, called Hoyan, went along to this to help. And there she met a young lady. Um, and she has two um, young boys. Um, they're at the front there, I think. Oop. No, I'll go back to there. Um, so that's that's her in the glasses and the two boys next to them. Uh, and they're my kids. And that's Hoyan at the back. Um, Now this young lady, her name was Erina, Erina. and to our surprise, her younger son was in our daughter's kindergarten, so we knew her family. Um, And so then we we started to try to get to know her. We invited her over to our house for a barbecue, uh, and as we chatted with her, it became clear that she was struggling. Uh, Her marriage was falling apart. Um, There was domestic violence which had traumatized the family. Uh, and, you know, just for her to look after two young, rowdy boys was, was getting kind of tough for her. So what did we do? We started doing fun things together. We went ice skating, bowling. Um, the point was, we knew it was hard for her to take her boys out and to do things together. So we thought we would do it together as a group so that she, her kids could have fun and, we would, and help her out as well. Uh, we pulled our money together and we bought presents for the boys for Christmas and for their birthdays. And then later we invited her to a Christian parenting course um, with my wife and with Hoyan to help her grow in her ability as a parent and to help understand God's wisdom with something like parenting. Uh, during these sessions, I would look after the boys. Um, and in the back of my mind, I would think these boys... Um, They've had some bad experiences with men, with domestic violence. And so, in the back of my mind, I wanted to be a better male role model on how I treat them, and how I treat my wife, how I treat my own kids. They lived in a small apartment, so I helped build shelves for them to help with storage issues. Um, And we prayed. We prayed for her. We prayed with her. We prayed with her constantly. See, friends, Jesus' ministry, this is just one example of me, us trying to do word and deed together. So let me ask you, how are you engaged in trying to do a ministry that balances word and deed? How well do you know your physical surroundings and the needs of the people around you? Um, do you have a ministry yourself, your, your people around you reaching the poor and the marginalized here in Perth? Are there single mothers, lonely elderly, are families struggling with chronic Sickness that you could bless? Uh, are you or people in your church, they have gifts who could really bless the people around you and you are in contact with? See, in my experience, one thing I've realized, I realize, I notice, is that when a good balance of word and deed is done in a church, one sign, a sign that I see very rarely though, is that there will be poor people in your church. They will be attracted to your church. Maybe not necessarily financially poor, but maybe mentally disturbed, socially excluded, or just struggling people. Let's keep looking ahead in the passage. So, verse 36, um, we see that there are crowds of people coming to Jesus. Crowds of people. And when I think about these crowds, I think about a story that a friend of mine who was a missionary in Bolivia for many years, his name was Lawrence and he and his whole family would live in a bus and they would drive all around to the poorest cities of Bolivia and he was a doctor and so at each town uh, they would stop at, uh, he would set the bus up as a mobile clinic and they would provide basic medical care so during the day he was a doctor um, healing people but at night He invited them all to come back, and he would tell stories from the Bible. And because of the nature of Bolivia, when people heard that there was a doctor in the area, they would line up outside his bus for days just to see him. And one day he told me of one story of a woman. And she came, and she had a sick baby. And so she lined up for days in the sun, carrying her baby. But by the time she finally got to see him, he looked at her, he looked at the baby, and he had to say, I'm sorry, your baby has died. And I remember hearing that, and was so heartbroken. And so I think it would be very natural to look at the crowd, the crowd that Jesus sees, and be overwhelmed with the absolute misery around them. I would suspect the crowd of people coming to Jesus was not that much different to the ones in Bolivia. But here's here's the interesting thing. When Jesus looks at this crowd, we get to see what Jesus felt in his heart. And he too, he is overwhelmed, he is overcome with an emotional response. But he doesn't look at them the way maybe a doctor might see a line, an endless line of patients coming to see him. He looks and he sees something far deeper. So in verse 36 we read, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, when Jesus looks at the crowd, he sees people, people who are like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does this tell me? So when I think about missions then, I think this, that missions missions must be about seeing the true needs of people. And the true need of people is that they need Jesus as their shepherd. See, when, Jesus, uh, when the passage here uses the words harassed and helpless, many commentators are thinking that he's talking about this idea of a sheep being cast. Uh, so C-A-S-T-E. I didn't know that word until I looked it up, but cast. A cast sheep is one that has somehow accidentally rolled onto their back, onto the divot into the ground, and, and for some reason now has their legs up, and it can't get up, it can't get off, it can't roll over again and, and walk around. Um, the, the heavy wool on their back uh, makes it hard for them to, to roll over. And eventually what happens is something happens in the stomach, and gases fill up, and now when that's happened, It's over. It's impossible for them to move. And soon, perhaps rats or crows, they'll come and they'll start pecking at the sheep. The lucky sheep, the lucky sheep might lose an eye or an ear before they're rescued. But the unlucky ones will be eaten alive. And so when Jesus looks at the crowd, this is what he sees. Harassed. Helpless people, because of sin, they're stuck in situations they have no idea how to escape from. And now, perhaps they're at mercy of people with greater power or, or people of evil intent. See, when I think about the mission field, it's easy to concentrate on the poverty and the physical needs of the people that are there. It's easy to see how poor people are harassed and helpless. Helpless. But Japan is interesting because it's a country that helps us think more deeply about what missions is really about. Because Japan is one of those countries that some people might think doesn't really need missionaries, does it? I mean, it's the third largest economy in the world. It has clean streets. It has polite people. it It has train systems where the trains always seem to run on time. So many people love to go to Japan for a holiday. It's so easy to be blinded by this and to think Japan doesn't really need missionaries, does it? But of course, the reality is that for a country with deep physical needs, such as Cambodia, as well as a country like Japan, which seems to have everything, the reality is the same. They both need Jesus as their shepherd. Clean streets and trains that run on time are meaningless, trivial things if you don't have Jesus as your shepherd. Without him, people are harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. See, let me give you a quiz. In 2016, there was a survey of young people, from 15 to 21, from 20 major countries, and Japan was ranked last when comparing, A, which one do you think? A, overall happiness, B, mental well-being, C, proportion who consider religious faith important, or D, proportion who consider making a wider contribution to society as important. All right. What do you think? Who thinks the answer is they will rank last for A, overall happiness? I can't really see it. All right. I see a few hands. B, mental well-being. I see a few hands. C, proportion who consider religious faith important. A few... Less hands. D, proportion who consider making a wider contribution to society is important. Ooh, even less hands. Oh, very few hands for that one. All right. Let me give you the answer. Oh, no. Nope. Oh, OK, it doesn't work. Okay, The answer is all of the above. E, all of the above. Sorry, I was just tricking you there. Um, <laughs> all of the above. Does that surprise you? All right, Japan has the lowest percentage of people who said they were happy and the highest percentage of people who said they were unhappy. Japan has one of the highest suicide rates in the world. The number one killer of young men is, themselves, suicide. Over 20,000 people a year take their own life in Japan. John 10 says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd, The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. See, the truth is below the glittering surface that makes Japan this favorite tourist destination. Japan is a place where instead of a good shepherd, there is a thief who is killing and destroying. There are so many in Japan that know what it is to be harassed and helpless. So when we read that Jesus looks at the crowd and he has compassion on them, When he looks at rich countries like Japan, when he looks at poor countries like Bangladesh, he doesn't look at their suffering and think, wow, that looks really tough. He looks and he thinks, let me be the shepherd you need. He thinks, follow me. Listen to my instruction and my guidance. Let me heal you. Let me love you. Let me guide you. Let me discipline you. Let me die for your sins. Let me be your good shepherd. We read on. And the next thing Jesus talks about is a harvest. He says he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Now, Here's something I saw very often in Japan. Uh, Whenever there is spare land, flat land, Japanese people would plant something, they would plant anything. Um, And living in Japan, I get to enjoy the, the full cycle of farm life in Japan. So from the initial planting, which happens in April, and then each week, um, you get to see the crop grow just a little bit more and a little bit more, a little bit more. And then around September, October, every year, the fields would be full and ripe for harvest. Um, it was a beautiful sight, looking like this. Uh, and each of the grains would be, be bending over heavily as it's full of rice on the ends. Um, and it was great to, to be there and see it. And it was a beautiful smell to smell rice just on, on the on the stalk, Um, and you would also see farmers, and they would be out there gathering, not gathering, inspecting their crops. And I'm sure they were thinking in their minds as they looked at this harvest, they thought, wow, how awesome it will be to finally be able to bring it in. And so when Jesus looks at the people, at the crowd, he too thinks to himself, a harvest, a beautiful harvest. But Jesus also sees A tragedy. He says we have this huge crop, but not enough people to bring it in. He sees lots and lots of people who are ready to hear the gospel, but not enough people to go out with boldness and talk about it. So, friends, what do you think? Do you see a harvest just like Jesus? I mean, do you see the tragedy of not enough workers? I have to say, I think it's actually hard to see. It's hard to see in Australia, it's hard to see in Japan. See when your church might be small, or when you see very few people become Christian and very little interest around you in the gospel, you might think, is there a harvest? Is there really a harvest? But the strange thing is in my experience there is a harvest, it is there, but you only see it when you are ambitious and you take risks to talk to people about Jesus. See, when I was in Bible college um, back in Sydney, uh, one of the things I just randomly did in the weekend was a um, Bible story- storytelling event with Wycliffe. And as part of the training, they made us go down the street and just ask if anyone would like to hear stories from the Bible, and we would tell them Bible stories. Uh, and when I did it, um, I was surprised I bumped into this guy, and his name was Ricky, and he's from China. And he was interested, um, and he wanted to know more. So after that, we invited him to come to our house, talk more, and we would do more Bible stories with him uh, over dinner. And because uh, he was from China, I brought along a friend. His name was John, and he was a missionary who worked in China, so he could help translate. And at the same time, next door to our house, uh, was a share house full of Chinese students. Uh, and so when John came over, he did this funny thing. Uh, he noticed this house full of students from China. And he's an Aussie guy. And he just would knock on their windows and speak to them in Mandarin and ask them, would they come over for dinner as well? And so you can imagine these guys, just, who's this guy, banging on the windows, and he's talking to me in Chinese and asking, have you had dinner yet? Uh, but they came. And so then, Each week after that, uh, we were hosting hot pot dinners in our house to a crowd of of Chinese students in our house, going through stories from the Bible. I I don't know how I finished Bible college doing this, um, but this is what I did instead of studying. Um, (laughs) For some reason, one week, only Ricky could make it. No one could make it. Um, I don't know why, but suddenly, only Ricky made it one week. But we decided, let's just do um, a storytelling session anyway. And so we were up to the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. And after we told this story, uh, Ricky became quite quiet and emotional. And very differently how he'd been before. And he told us that just the day before, a really good friend of his had just died in China. And he was really sad and overcome with this and and thinking what is death what does this all mean and so he was really surprised that we suddenly brought up this story about jesus's power over death and as we talked that night he decided to become a christian now friends how did this happen how did this happen it happened because i was told to go down the street and do something kind of uncomfortable and just talk to people randomly It felt risky and weird to do that. It happened because John decided to bang on people's windows and invite them over for dinner each week. And had I not done this, had John not done this, I would not have been able to see how plentiful the harvest can be. And let me tell you, when you see the harvest, when you truly see the harvest, you want to get out there and work there. So friends, do you believe Jesus when he says there's a harvest? Do you believe there is a tragic situation where there are not enough people out there to bring in the grain? Are you getting out there doing uncomfortable but ambitious things to talk to people about Jesus? I know it can seem hard. I know it can be hard. Um, let me give you some Hope hopefully help Uh, let me commend to you two books written by a friend of mine. Uh, His name is Sam Chan. Uh, He's from my church. He used to be a lecturer at my college. Um, His two books. One is called How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy. That's clearly that one. And Evangelism in a Skeptical World. That one one right there. Um, So Evangelism in a Skeptical World is written kind of more for church leaders, uh, people who are just thinking at that sort of level, but don't let that scare you off. But if, if that does scare you off, um, How to Talk About Jesus Without Being That Guy is written more for the average um, church person. My, my daughter read it. She's 11 years old. Uh, so I think you can read it too. It's, it's, it's really short. It's really easy. But it's really simple. But the ideas he talks about are completely doable. Um, I have to be honest, I think they are some of the best and, and simplest books I've ever read on evangelism. Um, he uses these phrases like, Merge Your Universes. Or he has this formula of coffee, lunch, dinner. And that has been so helpful to me. And a lot of things he actually, he didn't know this, and I didn't know this, but things he's doing there in this book are what we are doing in Japan as well. Uh, And I just promise you, let me promise you, that if you try out some of these things, um, if you do something ambitious to tell people the gospel, you will begin to see the harvest. It's only those who don't go never see it. And then you will see the tragedy that there are not enough workers. See, coming back last December, uh, I was also struck by how many churches and Christians there are out there. Uh, We go to churches where there are multiple services now with hundreds of people sometimes. Uh, We send our children to a Christian school. Uh, It feels like everyone's a Christian at that school and the teachers are Christians. In Japan, we have church in our home, in our living room. Sometimes it's just our family. Uh, our kids are the only Christians in the school, and so we have to sort of constantly explain to our kids, no, that's, that's, not, that's why we don't do certain things that the other kids are doing. Um, there's a church where near close to us, and it's, it was planted 20 years ago. Uh, today it has the pastor, his wife, and three people attending that church. Um, I know another church where, yeah, it's just one person attending the church and the couple who are running the church. Friend that, friends, that the need is great because the workers are few. The few Christians that are there, they really need encouragement. Just for them to see a mature Christian, to model for them what daily life might look like, to to meet a Christian dad and go, that's what a Christian dad looks like. That's what a Christian mum looks like. That's what it looks like to to, to be a a, a young Christian. To have these sort of models is something they need. Um, They need encouragement to follow Jesus, to be bold, to see what it looks like to be bold with ambition, with evangelism, with prayer. And so then what does Jesus command us to do? Verse 38 says this. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, you notice what Jesus doesn't say we're meant to do here, right? Everything I said right up to there, perhaps you're expecting Jesus to say, Now, go! But he doesn't say go. He doesn't say, Everybody, get out there and, and gather the harvest. Tell people about Jesus. Tell people about me. He says, he says, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers. In other words, Jesus tells us that the key response to the crowds of harassed and helpless is to pray, to pray. Um, J.O. Fraser was an OMF missionary to the Lisu people in southern China. Uh, for a long time, he saw very little fruit and he really struggled um, as a missionary. Nobody became a Christian and he was, yeah, he was quite discouraged. He wrote this in 1922. I used to think that prayer should have the first place and teaching the second. I now feel that it would be truer to give prayer the first, second, and third place and teaching the fourth. And he was right. And amazingly, after years of resistance to the gospel, many, many Lisu became Christians. Why? Why this call to pray? To pray. Because missions isn't something we just do. Like, you just do it. The task of missions is something we join in doing. Right? Note who Jesus says we're praying to. We're praying to the Lord of the harvest. Oops. We're praying to the Lord of the harvest. Um, You know, workers in a field, each worker... Is he thinking about that individual grain that bundle of grain he's looking after but the lord of the harvest was there at the beginning Um, he was thinking about the whole field since the beginning and he's thinking about it now and he's thinking about in the future but secondly i also want you to know that prayer when you pray when you pray for your missionaries it's much more than just making requests to god that he would listen it is together joining in in working for the gospel so you notice um, paul uses this sort of language in romans fifteen thirty. paul writes this he says i urge you brothers by our lord jesus christ and by the love of the spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to god for me right do you see what he says he doesn't ask please pray for me in my struggle for my struggles he says join me join me when you pray, join me in my struggle by praying. He's not saying, please cheer from a distance and help me out and clap from the stands. He says, join me, join me in this work. Because the task of missions, friends, is a spiritual battle. It is a tough spiritual battle, and God is the one doing the real work of calling people to him and changing people's hearts. And perhaps you might say to me, of course, yes, I knew that. I know that God is the one changing people. But if you did know that, you would pray so much more. See, people often ask me um, when I share about Japan, they say, why are there so few Japanese Christians? Why don't Japanese people turn to Christ? Um, and I think you know, many Asian neighbors to Japan have, actually have huge revivals. And there you, see, you see a lot of Christians in countries like Korea China, Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Malaysia, you know, you just all the neighbors seem to have um, quite a big response to the gospel, but not Japan. And I've thought about this a lot and some people, they point to sort of cultural reasons. They say, oh, Japan's special, they have this strong group culture, they have a history of persecution against Christianity. But the thing is, all these reasons could also be made against Chinese or Korean people too. So the reality is, we don't We don't really know. At the same time, here's the thing, we don't really know why the gospel has been so effective amongst Chinese and Korean people. But I often think about the question itself, and I think there's something wrong with the question. I wonder whether behind the question, why are so few Japanese people Christian, why aren't they Christian, is there's a belief that It should be easy for a highly literate, rich, modern culture to respond to the gospel, shouldn't it? It should be easy. It's so easy to be a Christian, isn't it? So why don't they do it? Because it's not easy. It's not easy. Jesus calls Peter and Andrew to follow him and he tells them that they will become fishers of men. A fisher of men, a fisherman who pulls a fish out of the kingdom of water into, I guess, the, land of king, the kingdom of land and air. Right? He's calling him to pull people from one kingdom that is as different to the next kingdom as water is to air. Um, perhaps it feels easy and effortless for you now that you're a Christian living in this new kingdom, but the process is a hard spiritual battle. Jesus calls us to pray. The first thing is to pray because it is a hard, It is primarily a spiritual battle. So every opportunity that we get to tell someone about Jesus, every chance encounter we have to meet with someone and to read the Bible with them, every time we hear a soft-hearted response to the gospel, it didn't happen just by coincidence. It was work one through prayer. So friends, have you been praying for the harvest? Um, let me just give you some tips to help you pray. Um, just two tips. Um, the first, and maybe it seems obvious, but maybe it doesn't. But I see, um, just from that those videos, which is great, that you have a lot of people in your church that, um, that you support that are missionaries. Um, and that's really good. I'm so excited to see that. Do you receive their prayer updates? I'm sure a lot of them send out emails and things. Are you on their list? Um, If you don't, then get on their prayer updates, receive their things, and pray for them, right? And pray for them, right? And, you know, if they send out an update, you can reply to them and say, hey, I prayed for you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, And I know when we have sent out our updates and when we get replies, it's hugely encouraging to us to know people are praying for them. Um, this is one of our newsletters. Uh, I have to admit, the opposite is really discouraging, right? The opposite is this. When I go to a supporting church on home assignment, and maybe I've come and I sit down in the, in the pews, and people look at me, and they say, You look familiar. Uh, are you new here? Um, and I don't really know how to answer that question. Yes, I've been away for a few years. Um, so let me just say, as an absolute minimum, please receive the prayer updates of your church of your missionaries um, and pray for them as well. Uh, and secondly, uh, if there are, OMF has a whole lot of really helpful prayer resources. Uh, before I was a missionary, um, I used some of these, uh, these, these OMF prayer guides like these. Um, each day, for instance, these ones, like 25 days or 30 days or 31 days, um, helps you gu- guide you through how to pray for a particular country or a people group, and you, you essentially go through the month with them. Um, they're really helpful. Um, and especially if you go on holiday to Japan, which a whole lot of people I know would like to do that, you can take one of these with you, and as you take each day of the holiday, pray through it. And I know that God didn't just answer my prayers, but he changed my heart as I prayed, and I hope that will happen to you. Okay, friends, we've looked at a short passage today. What has Jesus shown us about the work of missions? I've tried to highlight a few things for us. Right? Firstly, we must follow Jesus' example of doing ministry that is both word and deed. Secondly, we need to understand this, this fact that people's true need is Jesus as their shepherd. Thirdly, we need to see what Jesus sees. He sees this harvest of people yet to follow him and a tragedy of not enough workers and so the command for us is to pray, pray for workers into the fields. Let me close by, by simply saying this, friends it's worth it, it's worth it every moment you spend in time praying every dollar that you give And for some of you, I hope, who are wondering, is this something I could do instead of what I'm doing right now? I would say it's worth it. Over 200 years ago, in 1807, at the age of 25, Robert Morrison was the first Protestant missionary to set foot in China. He spent 27 years in China, mainly working around the Guangzhou region in areas like Hong Kong, Macau, Uh, He he didn't see a convert until seven years after his arrival, and even then he wasn't really sure the man actually understood the gospel. But here we are, 200-plus years later, and as I look around this room, I see a lot of faces like mine, Asian faces like mine. There was a harvest that was prayed for. Robert Morrison would have never dreamed to see a room like this today. Friends, it's worth it. For every Tadamitsu in Japan wondering, can anything stop this addiction to alcohol? For every Ricky from China here in Australia wondering about death. For every harassed and helpless man and woman wandering like sheep without a shepherd, it's worth it. Let me pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you allow us to be a part of your work of bringing people to Jesus. I thank you that he is the good shepherd. Lord, I pray for each person here at this church. Lord, give them the same compassion as Jesus had for the harassed and the helpless. Give them the ability to see this harvest Lord, may you cause more hearts to yearn for the privilege of being a worker in these fields. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.